Thanks, Derek. Um, I want to mention that the title of this quarter is uh, Saints, Mystics, and Ordinary Radicals. And uh, we're not going to cover all the people that probably should be covered for an exhaustive topic, but uh, I did want to mention a couple of additional people. Uh, Henri Nouwen is uh, uh, an author who's known and loved by many of us. This is his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, and in this book he talks about spending four hours uh, in front of uh, the, painting, the painting by Rembrandt, one of the last he ever did, by the way, in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. On two occasions, I have spent time in front of the Hermitage, once with Sandra in a hurried visit, and another with a good friend of mine, uh, Rich King, who is a, a work associate of mine, with whom I was privileged to spend a week in St. Petersburg with a, guide, with a uh, guide who was very knowledgeable about the city. And we spent an extended period of time. And th this painting has, uh, I think, meant more to me than any painting that I have ever seen or encountered. Um, and so I'm going to pass this book around, The Return of the Prodigal Son by Nowen. I also want to mention another radical that we haven't mentioned directly in here. His name is Brennan Manning. And he had a close tie with Rich Mullins, whom David talked about next last week, and whom I uh, want to show you some short uh, clips of. Uh, I'm, I'm in eternal hope here. Yeah, well, me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Brennan Manning wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Rich Mullins' band was called The Ragamuffin Band. Mullins thought of himself as a, a, real, a really flawed individual who was a beneficial, beneficiary and recipient of God's grace. And I want to read a passage uh, out of here. This is from Rich Mullins. I owe Brennan Manning $30 for lecture tapes I bought from him on an IOU. I'm not writing this forward because of that debt. I simply mention it because indebtedness is a condition indicative of ragamuffins, a condition we all share until we lose our, in our, ourselves in the liberating, healing, invigorating truth to which these pages bear testimony. My introduction to Brennan Manning's work came on a drive south from Manhattan, Kansas, through the edge of the Flint Hills. It's a beautiful drive, best accompanied by the music of Aaron Copeland, or by pure silence. When a friend put a tape of one of Manning's lectures into my truck's tape player, I objected. But my friend said, just give it ten minutes. Five minutes later, I steered the truck over onto the shoulder of the road. My eyes were so full of tears, I could not see to drive. I've attended church regularly since I was less than a week old. 
I've listened to sermons about virtue, sermons against vice, about money, time management, tithing, abstinence, and generosity. I've listened to thousands of sermons, but I could count on one hand the number that were a simple proclamation of the gospel of Christ. That proclamation is the message I heard that day, and it did what the gospel can't help but do. It broke the power of mere moralistic religiosity in my life and revived a deeper acceptance that had long ago withered in me. In our society, we tend to swear unyielding allegiance to a rigid position, confusing that that action with finding an authentic connection to a life-giving spirit. I can't think would help about the rhetoric of the campaigns these days. We miss the gospel of Christ, the good news, that although the holy and all-powerful God knows we're dust, He still stoops to breathe into us the breath of life, to bring to our words the balm of acceptance and love. No other author has articulated this message more simply or beautifully than Brennan Manning. I owe Brennan Manning $30 and I expect to get it to him soon but I owe him an even bigger debt for the freedom he helped me find through this book. And the greatest debt of all to the God whose grace extends to, and especially for, the ragamuffins of this world. So I hope that piques your interest and I can start this book around here too. And uh, if you're interested, they're available. Eric, where do we stand? I think we're good to go. Okay. I want to show you three clips. Rich Melling, Manning, Rich Mullins clips. I'm to Peyton Manning for some reason. Uh, first clip we want to show is a little clip of his personal testimony. We didn't get to see him uh, when when David uh, talked to us last time, and I hope this will give you a feeling for for Rich. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. How? My uh, my mom was uh, a was a Christian all along and went to church and everything. My dad, I I don't know if he would have considered himself a Christian. He, he didn't go to church a whole lot because we were Quaker and he didn't particularly get along with the Quakers. We moved out to a farm when I was about five or six years old, and um, at that point, my my dad really realized that he needed Christ and so we started going to the Christian church and we continue to go to Christian church um, I continue to go to Christian church while I'm still going to Christian church um, when I was in the third grade I was when I really realized that I had sinned and um, all the way growing up I mean I was always read the Bible and I always believed in Jesus and I always believed in God and I believed that they were very they were very real to me it wasn't like um, like it dawned on me one day that there really was a God. When I was in the third grade, though, I'd always been told that, you know, when we sinned, we separated ourselves from God, and I really experienced that. I mean, I really felt separated from God. And um, that was when I, um, you know, was baptized. And from that point on, I mean, it's it's real funny because that Sunday I was baptized, and that Sunday afternoon, my cousin, like, took me out behind the barn and punched me in the face until I cussed um, so that I would go to hell when I died. <laughs> Because he believed that 
if you sinned after you were baptized, you wouldn't be forgiven anymore. <laughs> so, you know, like I, in that way of thinking, I was saved for about three hours. <laughs> um, and the thing that I realized, you know, because um, growing up is, is pretty hard work, and it's, I just made a lot of, of really bad choices. I made a lot of, I would like to call them mistakes, but they, they were so deliberate, it would be hard to say that they were mistakes. Um, and the thing that I have really realized is my salvation really has very little to do with choices I've made. That even though um, when, when I entered into a covenant with God, he remained faithful to that covenant, whether I was or not. And so my testimony would be just that God is faithful and that he will go to any lengths to draw us to himself. And uh, so that's kind of long short of The second clip I want to show is a, a visual clip of a song that Rich Mullins wrote called Calling Out Your Name. And I've got the lyrics of this song that I would like to pass around. Got a copy? The beginnings of this song came when he was on a tour with Amy Grant and the first two lines came from a trip through the Midwest and the nature that he loved. The rest of the song came about six years later. He said, I don't, said I quilt, I don't weave when I do a song and so uh, six years later this song was born, and Eric, let's go ahead and listen to that. He plays the hammered dulcimer. Dance on the coast, 
This is 20-year-old music, and if you went to a Christian concert today, kids would be up yelling and stomping and shouting and running all over the place. When they heard the, these, this song at concerts, they would sit and listen and sing along and clap at the end. Uh, so different world, but it's not, this is not a Chris Tomlin world, it's a, <laughs> it's a world of two, 20 years ago. But as I said last Sunday, I can remember driving through the Flint Hills region, south of Manhattan, Kansas, through the tall grass uh, National Reserve, and having 
the window down and the, and the car little tape player turned up as loud as I could get it and listened to the song. Here's one final clip of Rich Mullins. He did a lot of preaching when he did concerts, but this little excerpt, I think, is, is one that uh, is worth our listening to because this will segue into what we want to do the rest of the class. We don't have a shot at it. Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. And this is what I come to think, that if I want to identify fully with Jesus Christ, who I claim to be my Savior and Lord, the best way that I can do that is to identify with the poor. This I know will go against the teachings of all the popular evangelical preachers, but they're just wrong. They're not bad, they're just wrong. Christianity is not about building an absolutely secure little niche in the world where you can live with your perfect little wife and your perfect little children in a beautiful little house where you have no gays or minority groups anywhere near you. Christianity is about learning to love like Jesus loved, and Jesus loved the poor, and Jesus loved the broken. Now, this is a song we're going to do in a yeah, traditional that's... church kind of way. <clears throat> uh, if you, I can stop here and make some time for comments before we go on to the next thing that we want to do in class. But do you have any reactions to anything you've seen? I'm sorry? Uh, no, it, th this particular segment of tape runs out. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, I, Anything else? Well, I had a question. Do you know, we probably said last week, but where did Rich grow up? He grew up in, uh, in a farm near Richmond, Indiana, which is east of Indianapolis. And, uh, I, just, I just wonder, you know, from the lyrics of this song, you know, he clearly appreciated the beauty of creation around him, specifically in the middle of the country. And I just wonder how much that appreciation helped inform his theology of not only loving the poor, but loving the earth and living in balance. That's, that seems to be the theme of his whole life. You know, yeah. he had this great wealth, but he lived off of a small stipend and it yeah. seemed like he had a good sense of what was... 22000 a year. And in his latter years, he lived on a Native Indian, Native American reservation. Right. Um, and uh, worth millions of dollars. I mean, he, he, his music was very popular and very lucrative at, at the time. Uh, Nan, you had a... He was a sinner. Well, I know it, but I just mean. It. I mean, he he said, "I am a sinner." Yeah. You know, he his whole public ministry was was built on that that fact. Yeah. He said, "I like to eat things with cholesterol." You know, and he was he would uh, drink. I think he was maybe a chain smoker. 
but you know these are kind of the the surface things that we we say are sins but I think I think he was at peace with God because God God accepted him yeah Okay. Other other comments before we go on. Yes. Yeah. And you feel uncomfortable about that, Luda? I feel bad, yeah, I do, yeah. because I feel like it is, we, I think it's important to not just give money to the poor, but I think if we have friends that are, I feel like it's good to be in touch with people who are not doing as well. And that way right. you really are involved with somebody. So to me and I just remember thinking that's a tough thing. I wouldn't want to move out on 8th Avenue by myself and live out there because I'm afraid I'd get hurt. You'd, yeah, you'd be in next week's, uh, ne- or next day's newspaper. Yeah. yeah so maybe. it's a tough, it's a tough situation. Yeah. Right. Uh, the Wayne Reed Center is filled with problems. You know, the neighborhood is. It's just a, a dangerous place. And it keeps on happening. Well, the next thing, the last thing I want to do here is, is I'll use the word segue again, is to move to something that David Van Hooser, uh, who's here today, and, and I'm grateful for that, has created about the life and works of Fred Gray. Fred Gray is one of our heroes. He is the author of this book, Bus Ride to Justice, which talks about the many things that he's done, and this short video that David has prepared will touch on several of those. And so I'm going to pass this around, and Eric, if you could start start that for us. Thank you. Can we start at the beginning? Yeah, that's it. That's it. controls what I do in my next Can we go back a little bit to catch I did the, yeah, that's fine Yeah My spiritual life controls what I do in my natural life So whatever I did in the civil rights field I had to first be convinced that what I'm doing Is that okay? I can live with Fred Gray and I can feel that my conscience is straight 
and that I'm straight with my God and what I'm doing about it.
her case was going to be in the recorder's court of the city of Montgomery on Monday. And this is now Thursday evening. So I said, well, Ms. Clark, don't worry about your case. I'll have your case ready. But I also told her that we're going to work on and going to solve the problems on the buses once and for all. would be here and uh, they 
talked to the man, told him that uh, he had a new health program. They got the impression that whatever was wrong with them, they would be treated for it. And they thought that the program was something that would help them improve their health and be more productive for their family. Now that the government knew, they became very ashamed of what had happened and for the public to notice, and they started talking about the possibility of selling, which ultimately resulted in a settlement of a lawsuit. Rosa Parks received the Congressional Medal of Honor uh, several years ago, as did the recently deceased Harper Lee, author of To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, Fred Gray is still waiting on his, but we're hopeful. Um, comments about... Can, just real quickly, can you tell about Fred Gray and Lipscomb's? Well, I think things, things are still in the process there. Any Lipscomb people here to 
add to it. There is a center of, uh, is it poverty, law, and justice? That's, is that law, or law, justice, and society? The title, yeah, that will bear Fred Gray's name. That will be a, a part of a larger college, which has just been established at Lipscomb, which last, which last week, Doris, Doris Kearns Goodwin, the uh, famous author, was here to, to kick off and, and, and speak about. Yes? What, how that started, though, uh, years ago, he was in the Nashville Bible School and... Uh, Nashville and, Christian Institute. Yeah, and then went back to uh, Alabama, and, and Lipscomb board members were the board members of the Nashville Christian Bible School. Institute, yeah. Institute. <laughs> NCI. <laughs> yeah. And they decided to close it, and they took the funds. To Lipscomb. For themselves. He sued them. He wanted the funds to go to a historically black college southwest uh, in uh, Texas, and he lost, he lost that suit. But it's come full circle. Lipscomb has apologized to him, has made him an honorary uh, doctor uh, like Hilton Dean and uh, John Johnston, deceased, and there's one other. Now I can't remember who it is. But he is, uh, he's been honored. And, and the money, the amount of money, with all the interest that it would have accrued, has been put into a, um, is it a scholarship? A fund of some sort. To, to right. fund young African-American lawyers, <clears throat> people wanting to be lawyers. Uh, David, David knows him. He was down in Tuskegee to to film this, he's been impressed with him. David, why don't you say a word about? Well, I'll just say, uh, I don't know what happened to audio, but President Clinton apologized. Right, we, we missed that. I don't yeah, know why. I don't know where that went, but anyway. Uh, which was a big, uh, actually, I guess, I get the impression that as much as a lawsuit, they wanted an acknowledgement, uh, apology from the United States government. <laughs> And uh, like Sandy was saying, I had never heard of Greg Gray myself. I was familiar with the man. They actually, Jerry and Sandy, kind of more or less introduced me to him. Um, so I, like I said, I was surprised at his lack of notoriety when it comes to the <coughs> civil rights movement. And uh, we did a lengthy interview with him, and, and uh, just a lot of it didn't make the final cut. But there's, uh, so I did ask him, because we tend to focus on what happened on the streets, and appropriately so, in the civil rights And there's very little thought to focus on that in the courtroom, which is, of course, his, his background. And I asked him about that, and he, you know, he's not, I don't get the impression he's bitter about that at all. He, he pointed out that there's not much drama as far as people watching and getting engaged with it less so important but I was I was impressed by him and like he mentions at the first he had to he needed to reconcile with God his, his actions with God uh, and that was a strong motivational force that he could reconcile that he felt like what he was doing and called to do was in line with what God <laughs> 
that was one of the biggest things I came out of with that is because I was curious about his ability. You know, mm. he was a very spiritual man, but I was also interested in how he coordinated that with his legal pursuits. There, there were twenty or so of us from Otter, mainly from Otter Creek, who went down to Tuskegee. We we stopped in Birmingham, at some of the civil rights sites there. The the 16th Street Church in Birmingham where the four little girls were killed. And then we went on to Tuskegee and spent some time at the History Center with, uh, with Fred. Uh, Nan and Doug, Brad Chrysler was on that trip and uh, several people whom you know were, were in that. And uh, uh, it's just, I think a time, an idea whose time should have been here long ago.